Today on the show, I am excited to talk to someone who is a celebrated name in terms of wine journalism. His weekly Wednesday columns in the Dining Out section in the New York Times are a staple for wine professionals and enthusiasts. My guest today, Eric Asimov, has been the New York Times chief wine critic since 2004 and has also been awarded a James Beard Award. His articles are always insightful, entertaining, and mostly educational. So I am thrilled to have the chance to speak to him personally and learn more about how he became the wine lover and writer he is today. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. My name is Camille Broderick, host of Camille's Demi Hour here on Nantucket's NPR station. And today I have the fortune to speak with Eric Asimov, the chief wine critic for The New York Times. Welcome, Eric Asimov. Thank you. Happy to be here. Wonderful. I think it would be fun to obviously discuss your career in the beginnings of one becoming a wine critic for such an accoladed newspaper. How did your journalism career begin? Well, it kind of began as uh, an outlet. I was a failed academic and looking for some way to earn money while I figured out what to do with my life. And I, I got a, a job at, uh, at a newspaper in Chicago and then kind of unexpectedly was offered a job in New York. And so I was hired at the Times um, quite a while ago, 1984, and uh, originally in, in national news, but I, my passion, even back then, uh, uh, was food, really. And so I started writing about food in, in my spare time uh, and, and wine, and uh, fairly quickly ended up doing that full-time. So was there a moment where you felt that you had that sort of big break or where you knew which direction you were going in journalism? I had been uh, with the, the food section for several years, and this was now in, in 1992, and I had been uh, proposing that we start a column that would focus on uh, moderately priced restaurants, reviewing them, because we, we really paid very little attention to them, and I thought that, uh, especially for younger people, um, and, it, and it turned out for everybody, really, um, there was a, a tremendous in- interest in the sorts of restaurants that we were not covering. Um, restaurants opened by immigrants, restaurants in, in, uh, outside of Manhattan in New York City, and, and, and cheaper places. So I had proposed that, and uh, I had almost, as a joke, proposed that I be the one to, to do the reviewing, and I was a little bit uh, surprised and, and very happy when they took me up on it. During the time, restaurants were being more written about in the fine dining world or the, the more sort of famous big-name yeah, restaurants? Yeah, you know, we, we had a, um, a restaurant critic who would pretty much focus on um, on, on the higher-end places, and back then it it was often a French place or, or a high-end American or Italian place. And um, back then, it's hard, it's hard to remember now, but back then uh, there was a, a real newspaper competition in New York, and other newspapers were putting a, a lot of effort into um, to covering these sorts of restaurants that I was uh, proposing uh, I cover. And, you know, it's, it's hard for people to remember that there was an era before the Internet. Um, but, but this was that era, and what was written in newspapers was uh, crucially important to, the, to both the 
um, the prospects for businesses and also for consumers. Yeah, and anyone who knows New York or has lived there or dined there knows that there's a plethora of restaurants outside of that higher-priced category that exposes the culture and cuisines that you really don't want to miss. Well, uh, absolutely. And nowadays, uh, I'm very happy to say that that those restaurants are, are really well covered. And, you know, you can't um, open an arepa shop in the in you know some distant Bronx neighborhood without it getting splashed over the internet within a week. But uh, back then, most of these places operated in complete anonymity, and so it was a, a great opportunity both for me to um, uh, to to go out to restaurants and write about them, and also to explore the city. Um, and by doing which, I learned really that you know there's so much more to restaurants and food, by and and by extension to wine than simply you know the flavors on a plate or in a glass. Uh, all of these things are an expression of people and of culture and of place, and and that's really what's most fascinating about food and wine. It's interesting because I wanted to ask you what your background was in regards to your upbringing for food and wine because you take on this whole different perspective about the culture at the table. It's not just wine. You you take that 360-degree angle about all the pieces that make an experience during a meal. So do you think that originated sort of through that process, or where did your food and wine love begin, as you mentioned earlier? Well, um, like many people uh, who grew up in, in the, the 70s, um, you know, my first experience of great food uh, took place in France. And um, I, was, uh, I was a kid with my parents on a trip, but the food that we had there was so um, different from, from what I was eating, you know, vibrant and fresh and, and, and flavors that were, you know, not sort of wine or, or hints of what things were supposed to taste like, but, but full throttle. And um, at these meals, I, uh, you know, I just noticed that there were gatherings. There were gatherings of people. There was wine on the table. People were enjoying the food but not obsessing over it. They were really enjoying each other's company, and this was part of a, of a shared spirit, of a, of a communal, cultural uh, spirit. And that's what I, what I took from it. And nowadays, you know, I think it's, it's important uh, not just to try to, to isolate wine as a collection of flavors and aromas in the glass, but to put it in the context of, uh, of a place where, where you're having it, what you're eating with it, who the people are, and, and to think of wine in terms of occasion rather than in terms of a, of a score or a tasting note. Do you feel the American culture is sort of lacking that perspective on wine versus... Or in other words, they're not grown up with the wine on the table, and it's part of the whole landscape and the fabric of their meals. Well, you know, it's all, it's all part of, a, of an evolution for our wine culture. I think, um, you know, when, when people learn about wine as adults rather than sort of uh, organically at the, at the table as children, you've got to read textbooks, you have to look to authorities, um, and for a long time in our country, that meant um, scores and tasting notes and these uh, 
you know, a, and a very isolating approach to wine. But I think we're, we're beginning to move away from that. Um, we're beginning to see that that wine is, is part of something larger and that there are, are more um, really natural, um, easier ways to, to become familiar and comfortable with wine than, than training oneself to be a connoisseur. If you're just listening, this is Camille Broderick, host of Camille's Demi Hour, and we are speaking with the wine critic for the New York Times, Mr. Eric Asimov, and we were just discussing the culture of our American approach to wine. And I also feel that in your writing, your style and your approach is very circulated around these other influences. For example, obviously, the geology of these places, history, culture, uh, were there other non-wine influences that really helped you in your wine writing? Well, I think my um, academic training, if you can call it that, uh, was in history. And, you know, one of the, the most important things about studying history is that you have to, you learn to see things in, in, in context and to think um, critically. And so you're, you're less prone to accept conventional wisdom and you are more prone to to ask why and where does this come from and what caused it and um, you know I think uh, questions like that are are very important for you know not just wine and food but for for studying anything right having some sort of other touchstone that you can apply back to your subject and to think about it like you said in a different context yeah I mean when you look at at wine you want to know. Um, you know, why, why did people plant those vines on that steep hillside that, you know, in the, in the, before uh, automation was impossible to get to? Why did they, why did they work And have to carry hard? baskets on their so head <laughs> and carry baskets on their head and walk up these. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. If you look at the history of wine, the, the, the lengths that people went to, to, um, to have good wine are incredible. And so, you know, I think that the, the natural inclination uh, of humans when electricity and engines came along was say, wow, we could do this in a much easier way. And they tried that and discovered that the wine wasn't nearly as good. So the story of the last 25 years is people going back up that mountain replanting those vines and learning how to uh, to do that hard labor again to, to get the good wine. And now they're paid a hell of a lot better for it. But these are the questions that I find fascinating uh, about wine, not whether it tastes more like pomegranates or plums. You have a great quote. You say, if you want to know whether a wine smells more like guava or jackfruit, I'm afraid I'm not your guy. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, wine is greater and more interesting than that. And it's true. When people ask, why is this wine so expensive and what makes this wine so special? It's such a loaded question because you, you do need to go back in time and explain. You don't understand how long this land's been planted, how many people have made mistakes to, to know what they need to grow, what diseases have killed things that they need to replant. There's more to the story than, than meets yeah. the eye. Give us an example of how you generate an idea for one of your articles. How much does the industry, your experiences, or even your friends influence you? Most of the influence is just by being out in the world and, and acting like a reporter uh, with a beat. And, and that means um, 
talking to people in the industry, uh, going out to, to restaurants, buying different kinds of wines, exploring what's out there, uh, asking questions all the time. And, you know, a lot of what I uh, choose to write about is based on, on my experience or, or, or my fascination uh, about things. My, um, sometimes it's, you know, it's a little bit uh, chaotic. I became obsessed with uh, Ali Gautier. Coming from more of a wine background, and from my knowledge and experience, you tend to root for the underdogs in the wine varietals and regions. So I, I always wonder if well, you're capturing the story or if you're you're just being a universal wine advocate. <laughs> I'm rooting for great wine. And, and what I have found so often is that for reasons of history or um, snobbish reasons, uh, a lot of wine is, is underrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, partly that gets back to the question of conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. We all know that Ali Gautier, to stay with that example, is, is a you know, horrible, acidic, white wine that is only made palatable by putting in creme de cassis to make a cure. Um, but if you actually go to Burgundy and you see that all of these great producers, uh, people whose wines, whose best wines cost hundreds of dollars a bottle, they all continue to make Aligote, and, and the wine is damn good. Why are they doing it? What, what keeps them uh, in the Aligote game? And why, why don't people realize that it, it's good? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because a lot of our wisdom is, is still from the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and it might have as well have been from the 19th century. You know, I think this is the greatest lesson for, for any uh, reporter, but certainly for wine writers. You can't just repeat things that you hear or read. You have to find out for yourself. I also feel that the public is a little misunderstood about wines. A lot of marketing or, like you said, misconceptions about what people thought was good wine. The whole I use the example of the whole Chablis jug movement or Zinfandel. All those two names were destroyed for almost <laughs> 30 years or something until finally Zinfandel came back with the pride and Chablis people still realize or they're learning how extraordinary that part of Burgundy is. But it takes time and education. And I feel that you do bring that out and your writing is educational at its best. Well, I, I hope so, because I think a lot of the things that I write about, um, people just don't realize. And, and, it's, and it's not that I'm, um, you know, educating them as much as I'm learning and just passing on what I'm, what I'm learning. And, you know, one of the, the great uh, lessons of the last 25 years are, are all, all of these places in the world of wine that have been scorned and despise that are actually now making great wine. You know, you mentioned Chablis, but places like Sicily that, you know, were, were regarded as, as just uh, sources for horrible jug wines or, mm-hmm. or Lambrusco. It's all, it's all sweet and, and candied. No, these, uh, these are, are sources for great wine nowadays. And it's, um, And I'm just passing on what I've learned. This period in the food and wine world, I feel we are in a renaissance. We have more access to things than we ever had. Do you feel lucky to be where you are right now? Well, you know, I feel incredibly privileged because um, we're in a a place in wine where 
so much is simultaneously old and new, ancient places that have been reinvented or, or rejuvenated. And, um, you know, we're all just uh, learning about what kinds of wines are now available. And, and sometimes it takes a, a leap to, to try these wines when you could just have another bottle of Sauvignon Blanc that you know you like. I think for people who are willing to make that leap, the, uh, the increase in the, the sense of discovery, the pleasure, and the, and the value are all going to be great. If you're just listening, we are speaking with Eric Asimov, the wine critic for the New York Times. And we are just speaking about the perception and the American palate and how we need to be a little more exploratory, adventure out there and try new wines. Because A, that's the way to learn. And B, there's so many good ones out there, right? <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Two of my favorite articles of yours is um, Everyday Wines, when you speak about it's not just about these hard to get, really expensive wines, but the everyday wines that can have just as much value in other ways. Also, the the Myths Debunked, which is another also great article. If I feel you get behind the scenes with sommeliers on that one to really talk about some of the things that are really important, especially temperatures of wine. And again, exploring new varietals and going outside of your comfort zone. You know, temperature is, is one of the most um, important things because it's, uh, there's probably no easier way to, to drink better wine than just to think about the temperature at which you're, you're drinking it. We tend to drink white wines way too cold and, and red wines way too warm. And, and if you have a good white wine in particular and it's too cold, you won't be able to to taste all the nuances. Similarly, with red wine, if it's too warm and, and it's good, it'll be a little bit uh, flabby and, and uh, fatiguing, but just uh, the tiniest little uh, uh, chill to it can really uh, increase the, the quality exponentially. What do you think about other qualities of wine that you really want to shout out and share? Anything from maybe uh, the importance of biodynamic wines or great valued wines. Uh, another good point you made, too, is the average price for a bottle is 9 to $10. But if you just go just $5, $10 more, it exponentially increases in value. Yes, really, like that, that sweet spot is really 15 to $20. And, and you know, you'll, you'll find wines that are distinctive and exciting. I've been reading your article since I started in restaurants over 15 years ago. And I can only imagine I've witnessed so many trends and changes just in my in my career. I can't imagine what you've witnessed. What are some of the big changes that you feel are happening or have happened over the past 20 years? Um, well, aside from the, the sheer number of, of great wines that we now have access to, um, w one of the most important things is to is thinking about wine as an agricultural product, as a food applying all of the, the knowledge uh, that we have about food to wine. And, and by that I mean um, a lot of people nowadays are concerned about where their food comes from, how it's grown or raised, health considerations. And I think that, that all, all applies to wine. You mentioned you know, whether a wine is, is biodynamic or not, and that's, that's sort of an enhanced form of, of organic agriculture. You know, that alone certainly doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a good wine, but it does help to know that there's not going to be trace elements of, of uh, herbicide or pesticide in, in the wine. 
that the uh, farm workers uh, didn't have to ingest any kinds of uh, poisons when, when doing their work. It's important to know if your wine is being manipulated or not, whether they're adding uh, enzymes, or tannins, or acidity, and, and uh different sorts of flavorings, all, all of these are, are important. And I think just as we're aware that there's a, such a thing as processed food and, and it's often to be avoided, the same is true of processed wines. Do you hopefully they, see a future of wine labels having the ingredients? I know a few wines do. I know Ridge actually lists everything that yeah, goes in the bottle. There are, but there are there very... Are Dune. There are a few. Do you, do you think that'll change? You know, I, I uh, strongly believe that that would be a great thing if everybody were, were required to list both the uh, ingredients and processes in, in their, on their labels. I, I don't have any real belief that that's ever going to happen. It's, you know, it's voluntary, and right now very few people are volunteering to do it. So what else do you think about the modern-day wine consumer here in the U.S.? How do you think they're affecting the wine market for the future? Um, well, I think that uh, I think people are are becoming um, more open to different sorts of wines. It's um, you know it's not just the the uh, Cabernet and, and Chardonnay and, and Merlot and, and Pinot Noir that are uh, although those are still the most common, but people are are embracing a, a greater diversity. You know, I should say that there's always going to be two markets for wine. There's uh, just as there isn't food, just as, as most of the people who go out to restaurants are going to fast food restaurants or, ch- or chain restaurants and a, and a minority are really focused on, on fine dining or visionary chefs. The same is, is true in wine. Most people see wine as, as just sort of an alcohol delivery system that's, that's pleasant. And uh, it's, a, it's a minority of people who really care what they're drinking, what, where it comes from, you know, see it as an expression of culture. But I think that number is growing slowly. And the more people who, who do think that way, um, cumulatively, the, the greater the effect will be on the more uh, great wines we'll, we'll have access to. So you are here for the Wine Festival this year, and you're putting on a couple seminars, is that correct? One of them, I'm, I'm part of a panel, and we'll be discussing the uh, the future of wine. That's like we're, we're talking about. Well, good. Maybe it's a little bit of a prep talk. Yeah. And you've been to Nantucket several times uh, for yeah. your visit here to the wine festival. So if you could describe Nantucket as a wine, what kind would it be? <laughs> That's a crazy kind of question. And I don't know. <laughs> Definitely something white, maybe with a with, with a uh, exuberant paisley pattern. <laughs> Well, I thank you so much for your time and to hear your thoughts personally about wine. I wish you a great stay on the island and an awesome wine festival. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.